Friends, we're going to read this morning from the Gospel of John. And so let me invite you, if you have your Bible, open it up to chapter 9. Or if you don't have your Bible, you can grab the Pew Bible. It's in the rack in front of you. Open it up to the New Testament, which is toward the back of the Bible. Open up to John chapter 9. And I'm going to read from the beginning of the chapter and also from the end. We're going to talk about really about the whole story from the whole chapter. But we're going to read some from the beginning and some from the end. So we're going to start with verse 1, go through 7, and then read also 35 through 38. So John wrote this. As Jesus walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. Then Jesus heard that they had driven him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. I've got a painting that I want you to see. Do you recognize it? It, this is called Starry Night, and it was painted by Vincent van Gogh. It's familiar, it's inviting, it's beautiful. wonder what happens to us when we, in our appreciation of the painting, when we dig a little deeper to know the back story, the story behind the story of this painting. How many of you knew that Vincent van Gogh was a believer in God? Yeah, I learned that this week, too. He was a believer in God. In fact, he felt called to be a pastor. And so he worked for a time as an assistant to a Methodist pastor in England. And he was so in love with God that he wanted to give his life for the church as a vocational minister, as a clergy person. And so he tried to go to seminary, but he failed the entrance exam. Now, thankfully, they don't have those anymore, right? So <laughs> Pastor Brad got accepted to seminary, right? So Vincent van Gogh went on to serve as a missionary, but he was told by his superiors that you know, he kind of rubbed people the wrong way, you know, one of those people with those kind of personalities. And so try as he might, he could not find a place in the church where he could serve. And so even though he still believed in God, he walked away from the church feeling rejected and, and disappointed. And so with that in mind, look at the painting again. Here's a village at nighttime. There, there's houses all around. And at the center of the village, do you see? It's a church. So we notice first perhaps the sky. The sky is brilliant. And the moon and the stars whirl overhead like pinwheels. Now what if the lights in the sky represent the light of Christ? What if the moon and the stars remind us of the light of God's love that is coming into the world through Jesus? Notice that some of the houses have their lights on. And we are reminded that the light of Christ is born in our hearts and in our homes and in our lives. 
And now look again at the church. What do you notice? It's dark. The lights are off in the church. Perhaps Vincent van Gogh felt this way about the church, that the light of Christ was real and it was coming into the world and it was in the hearts of men and women, but in the church where he wanted to serve and wanted to give his life, he found it to be dark and cold and unwelcoming. Now see, I've looked at this painting dozens and dozens of times, but I've never noticed any of those things before this week. And why not? Well, because there was no one to teach me and because I wasn't looking for those things and because I didn't know the backstory. Now what I want to suggest to you, friends, is that when we read this book, it works in much the same way. And part of what makes the, studying the Word of God so, so fascinating and so fulfilling and even fun is that there's more to the story than meets the eye. And when we find some small detail that seemed irrelevant at first and we realize its meaning, it moves us. And, and we respond with a sense of awe that, that God has given us this story, this word for us. And there really, there's two levels at which we can read the scriptures, right? There's, there's the straightforward surface level. We read the story that Jesus healed the blind man and we say, well, that's good. Jesus, all right, he's got power. That, that's great. But then there's a deeper level at which we read this story and we realize that the story of healing points to Jesus' identity about who he is now and for all time. This is a story about his power to change that man's life. This is a story about his power to change your life and my life. Welcome to the second Sunday of Lent and uh, the second Sunday of our sermon series. We are studying through the Gospel of John together during this season, and today we're focused on the miracles of Jesus. The Gospel of John is full of stories of the miracles of Jesus, and John uses the word to describe them. He uses the word signs. John calls them signs. Now, we don't know why John used that word, but if we could try to imagine getting in his head for a moment, perhaps John saw these miracles of Jesus as a sign because they pointed to something deeper. They pointed to something else beyond themselves, that the thing itself is significant, but also there is a meaning behind it that teaches us something of the character of God. And so, in the Gospel of John, Jesus performs seven miraculous signs. He turns water into wine. He heals the royal official's son in Capernaum. He heals the paralyzed man at Bethesda. He feeds the 5,000. He walks on water. He raises Lazarus from the dead. And the story we're going to focus on today, he heals a man who was born without sight. Now, by the way, uh, the Gospel of John covers the entire earthly ministry of Jesus up until the Last Supper in just 12 chapters. And of those 12, one whole chapter, chapter 9, is devoted to this story. What does that tell us? That tells us this is an important story. John really wants us to know this story, to understand it, and to appreciate its importance for us. So the story goes that Jesus and his disciples were walking from place to place, and the disciples noticed a blind man. And they said to Jesus, hey, Jesus, what's up with this guy here? Well, what did he do? He did something, or his parents did something? What was it? I, I like to imagine the disciples are from New Jersey. I'm not, not sure why. When I read it, and my neighbor is from New Jersey, and she's perfectly lovely. So please hear me. I love people from New Jersey. So they said, bada boom, bada bing, what's up with this guy? They wanted to blame someone, right? They wanted to blame someone for his 
blindness. Must have been his fault, or it must have been his parents' fault, somebody. And we can relate, right? Because we want the world to be predictable. We want to imagine that things happen for a reason. We want to imagine that what happened today is the same thing that's going to happen tomorrow, and we can uh, have a sense of security and safety. And it is hard for us to accept that not everything perhaps happens for some really good reason. And it's even harder for us to accept that life is sometimes out of our control. And so Jesus says, look, you guys, it's, it's neither. He didn't do anything wrong to cause his blindness, and neither did his parents. He was born blind so that the works of God might be revealed through him. And Jesus reminds us that while God does not necessarily cause our suffering, sometimes God does allow our suffering so that God's glory can be revealed through our lives. And then Jesus goes on to teach his disciples. He says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is still day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And then he finishes teaching, and what he does next is uh, interesting. Jesus spits on the ground, and then he takes the dirt and his saliva, and he makes a mud paste, and he takes the saliva mud, and he wipes it on the eyes of the blind man. And can we just stop for a second on that and just say that's really gross? Jesus, you know, what are you doing, right? We, we trust you, you're our Lord and Savior, that, yeah, but uh, that's, that's weird. Why, why would Jesus do that? It doesn't seem very holy, right? It doesn't seem like a heavenly thing to do. It seems like a very earthly thing to do. I, it, that reminds me, that story reminds me of when I was a kid and I would stand at the bus stop. Inevitably, I would have some breakfast still left over on my face, and my mom would fix it by doing this. <laughs> right? And I would say, wow, oh, mom, gross, gross. Got her saliva on my face, and, and now I do that to my kids, right? That's, that's how it works, the circle of life. <laughs> so Jesus spits and, and makes mud with the saliva, and uh, we're reminded that Jesus has come and taken on the flesh in, in all, all of its forms. And, and he takes this basis of, of human experience and he uses it to transform and to touch and to heal. So Jesus put the mud on the man's eyes and he says, Go wash in the pool of Siloam. And the man went and he washed and he came back and he was able to see. Jesus did a miracle in his life. Jesus healed the man of his blindness so that the glory of God could be revealed in this man's life, so that the identity of Jesus could be revealed to that community and to every person since that time, so that we would see that Jesus is not just a prophet. Jesus is not just a human being with some good ideas about love. He is also divine. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah, the one sent by God, the anointed one who has come to deliver all of God's people. Now, there's a familiar story in another part of the Gospel of John, or excuse me, a similar story that I want you to know about, and it's related. It's the one where Jesus heals the paralyzed man. And just like the blind man, the paralyzed man had been disabled for a long time. The story says 38 years. 38 years he laid by the pool of Bethesda, or some versions say Bethsaida. He's laying by this pool. Now the legend has it that the pool has healing properties. 
And every once in a while, the water would be stirred and it would bubble up and all the people who had come there would get down into the water when it was stirred and they would be healed. Except this man could not get into the water because he was paralyzed, because he didn't have anyone to help him. And so when the water was stirred, everybody else got down in front of him. He was not able to get into the water. For 38 years, he laid there. And so Jesus meets this man, but before Jesus heals him, he asks him this question. He said, do you want to get well? Now, what kind of question is that? Of course he wants to get well. He's been laying there for 38 years, presumably praying to be healed, wishing to be healed, trying to get down into the water and not able to. Why would Jesus ask him that question? Maybe there's a deeper level. Maybe Jesus is saying, do you want everything that comes with being healed? Do you want to change? Do you want to live differently? Do you want to be different? Of course, everybody wants things to get better, right? We all want things to get better, but we all don't necessarily want to change. God, could, God, could you come into my heart, please, but uh, maybe try not to disturb too much of what's already there. Jesus, I would love to have new life. Yes, I accept it, but there's, there's still some stuff from the old life, Jesus, that I'm kind of hanging on to. I'm, I'm kind of partial to some of those old habits. Do you want to be made well? You see, when Jesus opened the eyes of the blind man, he could see like never before. And when Jesus opens our eyes, we will be able to see like never before. So my counsel to you today as your pastor is think twice before you ask Jesus to open your eyes. Because when you do that, Jesus is going to show you some things that you may not want to see. He's going to show you some of those dark places in your soul that you don't want to acknowledge are there. And he's going to show you some people in your life who you need to forgive and love. And you might say, I don't know if I really want to forgive them or love them. He's going to show you some opportunities in your life to get out of your comfortable place and to take a risk. And you might say, Jesus, golly, I, I don't know if I want to take that kind of risk. Now, the rest of chapter 9 that we didn't read is, is about the blind man and his conversation with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. They were the big shots, the important people, and they were not very pleased with Jesus in general and definitely not on this day. For starters, Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees were really clear. You did not do any work on the Sabbath, including healing someone. Apparently, that was against the rules they said, and so Jesus violated their understanding of the Sabbath law. They also questioned whether Jesus actually healed the man at all. And so they called for the man, and they interrogated him. And then when they didn't get the answer they wanted, they called for the man's parents, and they interrogated them. And it's interesting, and if you look in the story, the parents said, look, he's of age, why don't you ask him? And the story says that they were afraid because they had heard that anyone who professed Jesus as the Messiah was going to be kicked out of the synagogue and they were not willing to take that risk. And so that's why they said, talk to our son. He can tell you himself. And so having no luck with the parents, the Pharisees went back to the man himself, and they began to pressure him again. And they said, hey, we know this guy Jesus is a sinner. What did he do to you? 
You know, how, how did he open your eyes? Were you really blind before? I mean, come on, give us a break. You, you want to follow this guy, Jesus? We know he's a sinner. And I love the blind man's response to the Pharisees. Look at verse 25. He answered, I do not know whether he's a sinner. One thing I do know, I was blind, now I see. Boom! Roasted. I mean, that is the greatest testimony ever. I've got no theological argument to make here. I can't explain the Torah and open up the scriptures and dissect it. But I can tell you this. I was blind, now I see. That's what he did for me. That's what Jesus did for me. And I want you to notice the contrast that John makes between the blind man on the one hand and the Pharisees on the other. The blind man listened to the voice of Jesus. He trusted him, he obeyed him, he went down to the water and he washed and he was healed. But the Pharisees, on the other hand, they didn't listen to Jesus and they rejected Jesus' teaching, and they considered him a sinner because they already had their minds made up. They figured they knew the deal, and this guy Jesus was simply a threat to their power. And so the question is, who is blind really? Who in this story is blind really? Yes, the man was physically blind, but the Pharisees were spiritually blind. They couldn't see that they needed the healing of Jesus Christ just as much as the man who was born without sight. They couldn't see that they needed help. Brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you this morning, we all need God's help. We all need to be healed. We all need to be washed. And when we fail to get this, you know, when, when the church of Jesus sounds more like the Pharisees than the man who was born blind, it's time to ask, have you been baptized? Have you been down to the water and washed and healed and given new life in Jesus Christ? And some of us will say, yeah, so what? And Jesus will say to us, brothers and sisters, it doesn't sound like you've been held under the water quite long enough. You see, when we're baptized, friends, it changes us. The grace of God through baptism changes us. Jesus becomes the Lord of our lives, and we are no longer in charge. God uses the healing water of baptism to cleanse our sin, to give us new life, to mark us as those who are saved by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice with me the way the story ends. The Pharisees are so fed up with this man and with his testimony, they did to him what they threatened to do to his parents, and that is they kicked him out of the synagogue. So we pick up the story with verse 35. Jesus heard that they had driven him out, and when he found him, Jesus said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. Jesus opened the eyes of the blind man so that he could see who Jesus really is. Jesus is saying, it's me. I'm the one. You know, you've been praying all your life for the coming of the Messiah. It's me. 
I'm the son of man, I'm the son of God, and I am here to deliver you out of captivity and to draw you into relationship with the God who loves you. And the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. He worshiped him. Friends, I want to suggest to you today that the right and good response to the healing power of Jesus in our lives is for us to worship him. And not just on Sunday morning, but, but also in your prayer closet, in your quiet time when you open the scriptures and you talk to God and you would say, God, here's my heart. God, I, I worship you. You see, when Jesus forgives your sin and when he saves your soul and when he changes your life, the right response is to say, thank you. And the way we do that is, is worship. And what is worship? It comes from the old English worthship. The word worthship, which means to ascribe worth to something. And this book goes to great pains to tell us that the only one who is worthy of our worship is God Almighty. And God says, worship me and me only. And so we gather in this room to ascribe worth to God, to say, God, you are worthy. Look at Revelation 4. It says, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. And so that's why we're here today, to declare God's worth, to, to say it to the whole world, but also to say it to ourselves. Sometimes we need a reminder, don't we? We give God glory and honor and praise, and we cry out to God through music and through prayer, and through scripture reading, and through the preaching, saying, God, we're sinful, but you're holy. God, we're weak, but you're powerful. God, we've done evil in your sight, but you are always good to us. And Jesus, we don't deserve to be forgiven or to be healed, but you have done it for us anyway. And so let us thank you, and let us worship you. And that's why we're here. But I want to acknowledge um, that this is a bit tricky for us in this room, particularly because of the seating arrangement. Have you ever noticed that in church, we come and sit down, and we sit in rows, and then there's something that happens up here at the front, and we're watching, and it's actually a lot like the cinema, right, or the theater, and uh, we say, wow, I hope it's going to be good today, and, and if it's really good, you know, you might even clap, and uh, you, you make a mental note about how it goes. You say, oh, that first part was, was pretty good. The second part, nah, that, that didn't do very much for me, if I'm honest. Friends, we could be forgiven if, if we thought that the band and the choir and the preacher uh, were here to perform for us and that we are the audience. We could be forgiven if we thought that because that's how we're seated, right? Friends, I'm here to tell you, we are not the audience. Now, there is an audience in worship, but it's not us. And do you know who it is? It's God. There is an audience of one. God is the audience of our worship, and we are the performers. Now, I might have a directing role or a leading role, but all of us are performers. And so when we gather in this room, we come to reenact the drama of our salvation. We come to give our gifts here at the altar we come to sing and, and to dance and to tell a story in the hopes that the audience will be delighted and pleased with what we can give and offer and perform for him. And so on your way out the door this morning, let me encourage you 
The question to ask yourself is not, did I like the worship today, or did it meet my needs, or was it my preferred style? No. The question to ask is, was God pleased with my worship today? Friends, that is the question that matters. Was God pleased with my worship today? You see, as we've been gathering together in this hour, this new 11 o'clock service, we've been talking a lot about style, about uh, music, about uh, how we decorate the space and, and the components of the worship service. And these are all good and important things. But friends, we need to remember that worship is not primarily about what we get. It's primarily about what we give. Now, do we get something in worship? Yeah, you better believe it because God is good, right? And God is always pouring God's self into our lives. And so I don't know about you, but when I leave, sometimes I'm encouraged. Sometimes I'm challenged. Sometimes I'm really fulfilled. Sometimes I, I feel really high or sometimes I feel solemn and, and I'm thinking deeply. Always I leave with a sense of God's presence. Always I leave with a closer sense of relationship with each of you. And yet worship is not primarily a consumer activity, we come not primarily to get, but to give. So I invite you, when you come into this space, to lay down your wants and your needs and your wishes here at the altar of the Lord and trade them in for God's will for your life. You see, there's no more important act of worship than when we come to the waters of baptism and we lay down our lives in honor of the one who laid down his life for us. Friends, Jesus is ready to forgive you. Jesus is ready to heal you. Jesus is ready to open your eyes and to change your life. We who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who walked in a dry and weary land, we have been brought to the fountain of living water so that we can say, as our testimony, I was blind, but now I see. 